Welcome to the Blue Collar Experts Podcast. My name is Todd Wall, and we recognize that the marketplace is more crowded than it ever has been in human history. We use the principle of if it is true there, then it is true here to find what is working in different contexts and apply it to your business. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Blue Collar Experts, where communication is the key to exposure. Today, we've got a very exciting guest and a very, very interesting conversation about what is the impact of touch on communication. I'm gonna go ahead and bring him on now. It's Matt Jesualdi. How are you doing today, Matt? Doing well, Todd. Thanks for having me on. Okay, so Matt, so I just wanna give a quick overview of what your day-to-day is, but then I wanna get specifically into these projects with the, you work on with TACDED, because on your day-to-day, you actually work for the state of Colorado, and uh, what did you say your actual job was there? You're, you're a, uh, I'm an educational- instructional, instructional designer. Instructional designer. So yeah. very, it, that's a very technical role. You work with, <laughs> you work with web, you work, there's all sorts of different things, very technical, because it's very interesting to me that TACTED is very art-based. And like when we were talking about a minute ago, uh, you said, man, I, I'll probably bristle up a little bit if you call me an artist, because that's from, cause that, that comes from your very you know, technical mindset, doesn't it? Because it does. You know, what is this role that you're really filling out with, with TACTED? What, what's the real... You just give me a brief overview of what it is that you're trying to accomplish. Sure. It is difficult to explore and examine and articulate because it's been morphing for so long. But 20 years ago, I started building um, a tactile model for an experiment. And what's it's, what it's morphed into is really me trying to interpret concepts like scale and distance um, art, uh, and that's why I don't want to be called an artist because I'm really interpreting somebody else's art in a tactile way. So blind people can um, learn what it is, learn the proportions of what uh, a painting is versus a sculpture, and get the idea of uh, what it's like to view something for blind people. And it really crosses over to sighted people too because. You walk into a museum and first thing that is on your mind is do not touch because your parents probably told you that. And there are signs that say do not touch and there's a, you know, a barrier. And I, I love even right here on your, your contact form, it says, get in touch. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, go ahead. Go, keep telling me more. Keep telling me not more. I'm still <laughs> through here. Sure. So what I want people to do is engage. And uh, there are a lot of museums that, welcome that feel of um, engaging with their art, not just viewing it from a distance. And, you know, depending on your eyesight, whether you're legally sighted, your eyesight will change. You know, you may not have proper glasses. You may not be able to afford glasses. So your, your vision of that art is different. If you're blind in any, any part of the spectrum of blindness, you're not going to engage with a piece of art unless you can actually move forward to it and touch it. So mm. some of what I do is reinterpret somebody's art 
some of what I do is interpret a concept like scale. In the case of the the building that you're showing right now, that is mm -hmm. the May DNF clock tower that's downtown Denver on 16th and Arapahoe. And the building on the left, the, the image on the left with the color is actually the very first model I made that was tactile. Oh. Um, it was, it's, oh no, I'm sorry. Okay, so this is how good I am. I thought that was my model. That's actually. <laughs> you know, so, you know, I, I, just to interrupt real quick. I noticed that in, in this picture on the right, it, it's not just, you know, blind individuals. It's you're also giving a new experience to sighted people as well, aren't you? I am. I am. The one, the one that's being uh, touched is a 3D print. Uh, the reason I thought the one on the left was mine is because the first one had a lot of color on it. The one on the right is 3D printed, and it's very durable. Um, people engage with it. And if you see at the very bottom, there are these little black um, spikes, and those are scale people. Oh. And that's what people were engaging with. You know, Some people much wanted like to look at it. Yeah, Much like here. So this yeah. is version two. Um, this is after I got some feedback about how uh, how sparse the the area around the, the, my model was. Um, okay. And the actual a blind person told me that I'm missing out on some uh, angles of the street where you know the sidewalk goes down to the street. Interesting. Um, the texture of the sidewalk. So I immediately started ripping up the base and redoing it. Oh yes, yeah. I see the I see the texture on the different different yeah. types, and and obviously you had the plants. You can feel that built-in pieces. Yeah, yeah. And plus, I guess even just adding the actual people versus the pegs, that's mm -hmm. a whole that's probably a whole different experience in it. It is. You know, the pegs were quick. They were solid. They were actually nails that I turned on a lathe to give it a little bit of. You know, you could feel a head, and they were solid. Um, people at that scale break, but I found these rubbery people that um, haven't broken too much. But, uh, you know, it, being tactile means being durable. And that's a really good puzzle for me because durable, cleanable, nice to look at, um, and, you know, not a, a work of fiction, a work of interpretation of important features. To be tactile is to be durable. Interesting. It should be. It's it's intentionally touchable, not just a rock that is touchable, but something intentionally designed to be touched and interpret. Interesting. And I, I just want to draw one line, interesting line of conclusion here with this, you know, because, you know, we work with, you know, all different types of businesses and, and, and it's interesting, you know, the whole the main thing that every business owner is trying to accomplish is that connection from their business to their actual customer. And so it's interesting to me that you said to be tactile is to be durable. And that kind of speaks, and I, I may be going off topic here, but I think that really speaks a lot to, as business owners, our mental makeup. Are we structured? Are we emotionally in a place not where we're being physically touched, but where we're ready to be engaged, where we're actually drawing people in to an actual tactile engagement, obviously not a hug, you know, that's, that breaks, that breaks sure. some social rules there, <laughs> but, but do you see the line that I'm drawing there? Just, yeah. you know, so many people keep people at a, a distance 
But this tactile art, you said you're drawing people in and that's what, that's what really creates the real authentic experience. That's, that's interesting. A great correlation. Um, okay. Keep, keep talking me through this a little bit more. Now you were telling me earlier about these, this five, the five steps to Colorado. What, right. what was this? You tell me this, what, what this five steps is all about. This started out as, um, something in my head, which, which a lot of things start as, and uh, yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to qualify this as that's not how I need to think. That's, that's not how there's this thing called person-centered design and it doesn't start with an idea in your head. It starts with a question to your end users. What do you need? Not what can I build for you? Or, Hey, this is a great idea. You should like it. So when I started thinking about this, I realized that I didn't want the, my concept to be it, but I had to start somewhere. I mean, it's like any hypothesis. You have to start somewhere and then get feedback and then build on it. So I started building this and bringing pieces of it to um, my blind friends and the uh, people of the Colorado Center for the Blind in Littleton, who have been helping me since 1997. Um, interpreting, giving feedback, straightening me out as far as, um, like, you know, a sighted person asking questions that uh, really aren't legitimate, but that's how I have to start. So I'd go back and forth with these pieces and start building a path, uh, a curriculum, if you would, of where to start and where to end and what to say in the middle. And a lot of things, because I'm more of a designer than, um, anything else. I was fine with bu building the models, concepting the scale, but the conversation part wasn't my, wasn't the most intuitive to me. Yeah. Because it starts with the conversation. What do you want? Um, how are you going to go through this journey? And the journey is you start with a dog and that's Russ on the left side. Okay. And that the dog is full size, you know, like a large puppy to, okay. um, to us. And you get used to that size. You know, some people don't have dogs, but I wanted people to compare themselves to the dog because the next that I'm going to point at the screen. That's not yeah. smart. Um, the next house is uh -huh. the, the the yellow house at the top in the middle. Yeah. And you and Russ have been shrunken down. You can see at the bottom right. Oh yeah, I see Russ right there. Yeah, that's you and Russ. Okay. And um, for a lot of people, that the sense of scale doesn't make sense. Uh, you know, if you haven't, if you haven't seen a lot of scale buildings, even then it doesn't make sense as compared to you. So what I wanted to do is make sure that you knew how big the building was compared to you. And with blind people, you know, there's not a lot of interaction with the top of the house. So depending on the, the age of the person, there was a lot of interest, uh, questions, and that's where the, that curriculum started. That's where the conversation started how much am i leading them how much are they discovering on their own yeah um you know when we before we started the conversation you brought up if i you know you asked me about going to colorado and what that felt like and i you know i talked about the you know when you're when you're in front of one of those gigantic mountains mm -hmm. it's it's humbling and you feel smaller and you brought up a great point. A blind person doesn't feel that. 
And so that's part of the intent of this, isn't it? Just to create a brand new experience of scale, like you said. Experience of scale is exactly what I was hoping you would say. Yep. Um, you know, it's not just blind people, but anybody who hasn't paid attention. Uh, yeah. As sighted people, we don't pay attention. You know, we'll, we'll scan something and think, yep, seen it. But there's no emotion. There's no connection. And I've had a lot of sighted people go through the five steps and they come out with a different concept of not just the state of Colorado, but the different steps in between. The, the one on the top right is Mile High Stadium. I was hoping you were going to say that and not yeah. a toilet seat. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. know. Unfortunately, I do see the score. I do see the scoreboard <laughs> down here. <laughs> in hindsight, I would have made it a different color. <laughs> um, there is a scale house that goes in there, and it's the, the exact same house and the exact same set of people. Oh, I see. Um, I didn't include a picture of that because I'm a lousy photographer, but <laughs> imagine this house is. Um, it's like a pebble sitting inside yeah. that, you know, it's really small. And the, the model and it is show for the experience wide. of scale. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So you get shrunken down again, you know, you and Russ are this dot inside the mile high stadium. Yeah. And then the next step is the map. Um, that's a map of the Metro Denver Metro area. Sorry. Okay. And, um, you can't really see it, but Mile High Stadium is near where, um, if you look in the red, the lines are I-25 and I-70. The, okay. the, there's a horizontal line that's I-70, and the line's going up. It, one is Santa Fe, one is I-25, you know, okay. merging into. So where those three lines converge into the upper left of that red area, which is Denver, is near where Mile High Stadium is. And at that scale, it's the size of, it's smaller than your pinky nail and about the thickness of a piece of paper in real yeah. scale. So you've just transported yourself into something that is unseeable, which is a fun concept on its own. But the city, if you could see the entire Denver metro area, as humans, we're unseeable because all you can see is something that is man-made, um, you know, geological, so it's it's just a sense, another sense. And we, we talk about scale at that point too, more of the conversation. We talk about distance being scaled, time being scaled. Um, one of my favorite conversations was with, uh, I think he was a teenager, and he could figure out where he lived in the map and where his dad had to work and what okay. route he had to take. And the fact that his dad took 45 minutes to drive there I jumped on and I said, how long does it take your finger to travel that distance? <laughs> and he did it. And he goes, well, about three seconds. And I said, that is scale. We've just scaled time now. Wow. Yeah. And then obviously to the bigger, to the even bigger picture, and you're, you're moving them outward and outward. Yeah. One thing I'd like, Matt, one thing I'd like to put a pin in and really to talk further on is you said when you began to design these projects, you had to reverse your thinking. Tell me more about that. You said you had to think about the end user's experience mm -hmm. first. T tell me your thought process on that. I mentioned human-centered design, something that uh, a company called IDEO 
um, I don't know if they invented the concept, but they invented the uh, commercialism of it. And it's a way of designing for people, not designing for myself, not designing for what I think people need, but designing for a need. And the only way to know what that need is, is to ask. So in this company, I've realized that my end user and my customer are sometimes two different entities, two different people. The end users are the people who walk into museums, um, the people who come and see exhibits. My customer is usually the person paying for it. It can be the uh, museum. And it's a very different kind of conversation to have with these people to get them to buy into something that they may not interact with that much. But it's, it's still that question, what do you want? Um, I don't want to be an arrogant designer and say, I've designed this, you're going to love it. Because we've all had to deal with it. We all live in somebody else's house or somebody, a house that was designed by someone else who maybe didn't ask questions. Um, you know, how many times do we go on a street and think, why did they design this intersection like this or this, this off-ramp, you know, four lanes going down to one for an off-ramp? And that human-centered design is something that I started with as questions, ask, asking the wrong questions, because I'd never dealt with people who were blind. I'd never had anybody who was blind in my family. So I didn't know what their daily life was like. And I was asking the dumbest questions. And they straightened me out pretty well. The Colorado Center for the Blind, they're great people. You know, also trying to connect the dots between multiple other types of businesses, how often have you seen a business that creates what they feel like is the perfect product, but they haven't, like you said, human-centered design. They didn't think about their customer first. They just thought about what they could do well. Yeah, And that's that, a whole different reverse thought process. But I think that's where all the power is, don't you? I do. Uh, as an instructional designer, now I see that as an industrial designer, which is what my degree is in. We saw that all the time. Industrial design is product design. And uh, my favorite thing to do with students was to, I taught for, yeah, 15 years. My favorite thing to do was to bring in a product that was absolute crap and ask the students what they thought about it without telling them what my thoughts were. Um, because a lot of critique is, is learning a language. And the better they got at that language, the better they could analyze things. And it's, it happens all the time. You know, I'm not sure you can see an iron that um, is so hot on top that if you hold it wrong, you could burn yourself because it's a travel iron. It's, it's compact. Somebody thought it was a great idea, but didn't do testing. And user testing is something that I am huge about. Every piece that I do is tested by blind people at many phases. And I know that sounds like a sales pitch, but it's the same thing. I'm sighted, so I get to see the product and I know it immediately. And I not only know it, but I know it intimately because I've built it. I've touched every aspect of it. Yeah, but you told me about all the adjustments that you had made based off feedback of the end user. Yeah. And that I mean, happened that a lot. That'll happen. I mean, I think that, I mean, the think about the value of any business of putting that process in place, of making sure they're getting feedback from the end user, sure, and then and then being willing to 
mold their process and because you you could have just heard the feedback and ignored them right oh yeah yeah that wouldn't have, that wouldn't have made the right design then would it no or the right user end user experience exactly there's no pride in that um you know that's a great that's a great point they can't be can there no no i think it's important yeah just removing the pride and actually because that was also an intentional move that you made of, you know, actually seeking out that feedback um, yeah. and then being open and, and not, you know, checking your ego at the door and actually making those adjustments. Because in your mind, the, like those nails were fine. They had a head on them. Sure. Yeah. 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 You know, having no texture at the bottom, that's, now that made total sense to you. But it did at the time. I, I, I love the adjustments you made. So Matt, I want to, I want to transition a little bit because there was another project that you had at the, uh, was it the Denver art museum? Yeah. Okay. That you're, you're really excited about that you said was, was, uh, one of the most intriguing pro exhibits you did. And it was a, you know, you correct me on what it would actually be called because it's, you know, for a, a sighted person is called one thing, but you wanted it to be called something else. It's essentially, it was a, 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 an escape room with no light. The escape room. Yes. That wasn't for the Denver art museum. Okay. Who was that? Who's that one for? That was for Denver maker fair. Oh, maker fair. Okay. Yeah. Um, so tell me, tell me about that. And I mean, what you said, you didn't like it being called an escape room. Yeah. What did you like for it to be called? A puzzle room. And what, why is that? So walk me through that project and kind of the conclusions you came to and the kind of aha moments you came to with that. Sure. It is a very long story. So I'm going to shorten the, uh, the beginning and the middle. Um, I had an idea and it was basically three words on a piece of paper, pitch black puzzle room, four words. And the idea was that, um, I heard a conversation that blind people were having about um, escape rooms and how inaccessible they were. And that one of them had been to an escape room that they had tried to put braille on things, and uh, but it was with other sighted people who were guiding them. And it really didn't work. So those four words sat on paper for a few months, and I got an opportunity to build it. And that is a huge story. But the guy who was running Denver Maker Fair in 2018 asked me for um, ideas for a main exhibit and Pitch Black Escape Room came up. So I did a presentation to him. The, um, the idea morphed a lot. It went from something STEM oriented to something um, alien oriented, alien based with a whole story around it and a lot of theater. But putting Blind people in a pitch black room doesn't affect them. Even if they have some sight, they train with um, goggles that, that obscure all light so they can you know, train for the future sometimes. Sighted people, when they go into a pitch black room, have different emotions, different reactions. Some of them will freak out. Some of them will calm down. Some of them will just not know what to do. And I didn't want that. Traditional escape rooms, people walk through the room, across walls, and search for things. And I knew if I had done that, people would be running into each other, bumping each other, maybe touching each other inappropriately, a lot of interaction that wasn't really um, safe. So 
the puzzle part came about in that it was uh, we built a hexagon. The walls were six feet wide on the inside. And the five walls that were left after we made an entry were puzzles. And each person got their own puzzle. They never got to see it. We had something called a light lock. And that, that was what we call it. But, you know, in space, you have an airlock. And it's this transition from going from one atmosphere to another. We wanted that going both ways. So going from a lit room into this light lock, the lights would slowly fade. I would talk to the people about how safe it is in there. There's, there's no touching. Um, nobody is going to run at you. There's no um, immediate time limit. We did have a time limit because we had so many people in line. That funny story about that, we had so many people, we had to have everybody's phone numbers so we could text them and tell them to come instead of standing in this huge line which is really encouraging. Um, so, you know, as the lights faded down, people got the idea that everything was going to be okay. There was no zombie on a chain getting longer. By the time the lights were off, I opened the curtain and they followed a rope around to their wall. And then they had 10 minutes to solve the puzzle. And the puzzles were alien-themed in different ways. We made up a story that um, aliens had sent this module to Earth to um, explain their culture to us. And the culture was about a planet that had evolved. I mean, this species of humanoid creatures had evolved on a planet that had a sun that emitted everything except visible light. So they got warmth, they got radio, they got mi microwaves, everything, just not visible light. So this um, culture grew up with no reason to see, no way to see, and no no concept that there was something missing to see. So everything was very tactile. Um, 2018, way before the pandemic, we had everybody use bacteria, antibac wipes. And the, the story was that we wanted to make sure that human germs didn't get on the sensitive um, alien archives. The, our real story was that things get dirty. And this was a giant experiment. It hadn't been done before. The pieces in there, we didn't know how durable they would be. This was made under time challenges and budget challenges. And I had a, a team of uh, four other people working with me, four other designers. So we built the walls based on what we knew, what, what you know, a weekend's worth of interaction. So part of what we didn't want was to have people's germs and dirt on our pieces. Because we knew we'd have a reset time in between groups. We could only have up to five people. So our reset time was drastically decreased because we didn't have to wipe everything down. We just had to reset all the puzzle pieces. And that really helped. We got people, uh, especially parents, saying, as they're wiping their hands, thank you for this because I know that you know, I'm not going to catch something when I go in here. It's, it's nice. Right. To and, and that was even before all the big scare and everything. So, yeah. Yeah. So, okay, so they'd walk in. I love how they, they follow the rope. And so you're, you're guiding them. Even that by itself in the dark, following a rope, that completely changes your sensory uh, orientation. So then they just have to solve the puzzle. And then that would allow them, that was the completion of it, was just solving the puzzle? Yeah. A lot of times people wouldn't solve the puzzle. Um, we had to make a 10-minute time limit. Every once in a while, I'd go further, just you know, judging by... 
how close they were going. I was in the room with them. So I spent a lot of time in, in pitch blackness. And yeah, by the time we started, we'd done so many tests, including a soft opening, that I could tell when people were struggling. So I could say, um, you on wall number three, do you want a hint? And they say, yeah, great. So, you know, and without seeing, I could tell what they had or hadn't done based on the sounds of the different interactions. And it was nice because, you know, instead of frustration, we didn't want to build walls of frustration. We wanted this soft, fun entertainment experience for people to walk out and go, wow, that was cool. So, so what big conclusions or learnings did you have through this process? Um, where, were there, was there anything specifically that surprised you about people's uh, <laughs> engagement into sensory? And- there were some. Uh, they, they, there are people who are so accustomed to puzzle room, uh, sorry, escape rooms that they mm-hmm. were rushing through their wall. And um, they also broke things. Um, it, it could have been panic because we, we had a couple people say, I can't do this anymore in the mm-hmm. middle of, of the puzzle. And I would have them walk over to me and, you know, just put their hand on a wall, not, not really make contact with them, but just so they could have something stable to, to be close to. Um, there was no difference, and this was probably the biggest uh, takeaway. There was no difference in how blind people and sighted people did. The, the ones who panicked. That's interesting. Yeah. The sighted people who panicked, there was a difference. They didn't finish yeah. anything. The people who were calm, um, because pitch blackness is very soothing. It's not something we usually encounter. There's always, I mean, there's a freaking light on everything we own. And we don't really. It, get it almost became like a, an emotional sensory experiment, yeah. didn't it? It's like being inside a very warm, strange blanket. And Interesting. it's everywhere. You know, it's, we don't get to experience that as sighted people. And yeah. Blind people do, but it's normal to them. So it's, it's not an experience. It's just, you know, daily life. <laughs> but the fact that, that blind people and sighted people didn't have a whole lot of disparity in between their results was interesting to me. There was no yeah. advantage or disadvantage. Um, it was just, if you got into it, you had a fun experience and walked out with something different. So was it the, comp- ultimately, was it those who could maintain composure and focus was the differentiator? Yes. I mean, I, we didn't have a lot of people freak out. So th- that was yeah. a minority. Okay. We had a few kids uh, who got disturbed, but th- if they were yeah. young enough, they were with their parents. And, yeah. um, you know, my, my imagination said that they were just hugging their parent at that point, hugging their leg mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. Not engaging. We had quite a few puzzles that were low enough so we could allow wheelchair, uh, people who were in wheelchairs um, go in and, it, interact with them. Um, some of them were a little high. So if we saw somebody using a wheelchair, we would guide them to a specific wall. And if they were smaller people, you know, we'd use the same walls just to make sure. There were a lot of um, unaccompanied small children, not, you know, toddlers, but parents would say, yep, he wants to do it. I'm not going in there. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Matt, I, w- I want to transition to another one of the projects that you worked on 
because mm-hmm. you, you provided some great pictures that really show how you transform a flat piece of art into something that someone can experience. Yeah. And so it, it now is from this, from this view, this looks like the flat piece of art, but is, is this the version that you'd actually did? It's both. So this it's is both. for the Denver Art Museum. And, okay. Um, the, the piece that they had made in 1993 is the piece in the forefront. This okay. is um, a uh, Tibetan mandala that was made in the very traditional way. They were monks pouring colored sand. It took days to do. And um, it has a lot of three-dimensionality to it. But it, for the most part, it's you know probably no more than a quarter inch thick. But it's beautiful. And they had got special... The Denver Art Museum got special permission to um, have it glued down, which is not the norm. The norm is the the ceremony of creating it and the ceremony of pouring it back into the earth because it's oh. just sand. So okay. they'll pour it back into a stream or you know put it on on the edge of a, a river or something like that. Okay. So it's a permanent piece. Um, what I did is in the background of this photograph on the wall. Okay. What I had was a high-resolution image of the actual mandala that the Denver Art Museum had taken and had stored for quite a while. They didn't know what to do with it. But they wanted a three-dimensional interpretation of it. And we went back and forth a lot about what's the essence of what they want, what's the essence that I should keep. And it turned into a learning experience for me because I had to do some research about how these mandalas are red. Um, I think I found it accidentally because I was doing a lot of research about the hierarchy of the images, trying to pull, because it's got so much detail, I can't make yeah. everything tackle. You know, this, this is the picture that really grabbed yeah. my attention. When you really see it up close, you see how you were able to, you, you took this flat image, it was sand, the actual flat image typically, and how you raised it up so a person could tactically experience this. The important part, I think, was raising just the images that um, that had story to them. So the way I found out that you read a mandala is from the middle first. And it's it's off in the background, so it's fuzzy. But the middle is about... Uh, I think it was an inch and a quarter thick. And when you go down, or sorry, down, uh, when you go out to the edges, it gets thinner and thinner. But every once in a while, pieces will get raised up because they were prominent again. They were part of you know the, the story. And the whole thing is a story. So I wanted to keep the integrity of the image. Everything I put on it as texture was perfectly transparent, including all of my glue joints, which was Tedious is the right word. I'm sure there's a four-letter word that would explain (laughs) tedious better. Um, Because everything had to be clean. I couldn't let anything fall into the glue joints. My uh, glue joints had to be bubble-free, which is very difficult. I I ruined a couple pieces. I had to start over. But everything is laser-cut, clear acrylic. And um, I polished the edges as much as I could without going nuts because I... I actually didn't count the pieces intentionally. I didn't want to know hundreds. I just but, didn't want to know how many. But with, so without getting lost in, I mean, because obviously extremely difficult, you know, building this out. 
I mean, tell me, tell me more specifically about the experience part. Like you said, it is all part of a story. So in this, this, uh, tactical experience, what was the intent with having certain things able to be touched and what was the real intention and aim and strategy behind that? The strategy was to educate sighted and blind about the importance of the mandala. The, the center of the mandala is actually considered a floor plan of a three-dimensional building. And I wanted that to be explained in the text on the wall and also in Braille. But the importance of it, you know, how, how you read it was part of the story. Because there's a lot of imagery in it. I mean, it's all imagery. If you imagine that's just basically a two-dimensional image of a story. It's like, you know, reading a storybook, but the the pieces that I took and amplified were the highlights of the story that if you knew what you were looking at, you could interpret it. There wasn't room that the Denver Art Museum didn't want to go into the entire novel length uh, ex- explanation of what the mandala meant. But it was part of the exhibit that was concentrating on the theme of light. And they interpreted the, the mandala as enlightenment. And that's one of the reasons I wanted the clarity of the image to, go, to come through. Because it's, it's a very simple concept. Enlightenment, the, the image that, of enlightenment that the mandala shows is a very simple concept. It just has a lot of pieces to it. And those pieces are what I wanted to get people to actually see um, and I use the word see, even if you're just touching it, because that's really how people see, sighted or blind. We make lots of pictures in our head when we touch things. And um, you get images that you don't normally get, as you know, especially with sighted people just glancing at something and say, yeah, I've seen it. So it was interesting to, to get feedback, especially when I was testing it. I did uh, small 11 by 17 tests and took that to the Colorado Center for the Blind and got them to, to give me feedback about what they saw, what, what hierarchy there was. You know, hmm. Is there enough detail? Is there too much detail? So I did three 11 by 17 tests before I did the, the full-size one. I love uh, that. Again, think... test, test, test. I mean, it's oh, just... Yeah. Matt, it's, thank you so much for this time. I mean, this, this, uh, this conversation has created... A new new sensory understanding that I think that any business owner can can really benefit from. I think so. Uh, I mean, so like you said, you know, the first thing is anything tactile needs to be able to be touched. It needs to draw people in. So is that business, are you as a leader um, approaching it in a way that you're drawing people in to where they're close enough to to, to touch the situation. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing you said is think about the end user. You said the human centered design, meaning are you just, are you creating this business because you think it's great or because it's something people need? Yeah. And then you said you kept getting feedback on that. So it's always a feedback loop of getting, hearing what they were what was working, what was not working, and then adapting to the feedback 
that you're actually hearing. And then that fourth thing, I think that we, we didn't camp on much, but it, and it and it goes into this that last experiment of making sure the story stands out, making sure the story isn't just flat. They can able it's able to be touched and sensed on multiple levels to to where that story can be felt. And I think there's a lot of value to to business owners because it's true in in this design scenario, but it's also true in in day to day business. Yeah, I think that's why I don't want to be called an artist because I'm designing a product. And it, they're unique products, but they are still a product and they need to be durable. They need to talk to the end user. They need to be, they need to be appealing to the buyer, but usable for the end user. And I wish more companies understood the difference that the buyer is important. If there's no buy-in, there's no product, but the end users have to be happy. And it's not always the buyer. Absolutely. And just like your website says, education through touch, yes. bringing the customer into the story. I, I love it. Matt, thank you so much for this time. Thank, thank you, thank you for kind of bringing us into this new sensory world. And uh, I, I can't thank you enough for kind of walking us through your whole process, not as an artist, but as a designer of an, an experience. Which is exactly what every business owner is. That's what a blue collar expert actually is a designer of an experience that draws people in so they can encounter that story and sense something on a whole new level. Thanks again, Matt. I really do appreciate it. Thanks, Todd. I appreciate this opportunity. Okay.